0: And this morning we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 to 42. I want to begin reading at verse uh, 29 and read through verse 42. So, Matthew 24, verse 29 to 42, and again focusing on verses 36 to 42. Listen now to the reading of God's Holy Word. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near, so you also, when you see all thing, all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away, till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. But my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other left. Let's go ahead and uh, seek the Lord's blessing on this His holy word. O gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks for your blessing upon us. We thank you for your word, for the truth that it contains. And Lord, as we come to this passage, we pray that your spirit would give us understanding and insight. That your spirit would go forth with your word. And that it would find within our hearts that rich, fertile soil. That'll bring about great and abundant fruit for your glory. We ask Lord for your blessing now upon your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. April sixth, seven ninety-three. And January first, one thousand. February twentieth, fifteen twenty-four, december twenty-fifth, 1814 October 22nd 1844 June 21st 1982 September 6th 1994 May 21st 2011 and September 28th 2015 What do all these dates have in common? Well, they are all falsely predicted dates of Jesus' return on the last great day. And of course, these are just a few of the failed predictions. There are many, many more. Some that are just as specific with a specific uh, date and others that are more general as to just saying a particular year. So much false hope. And so much failure. And yet it doesn't stop false prophets from continuing to make these predictions. And all this, of course, despite a passage that we have before us this morning, that couldn't be more clear. No one knows the day or the hour. And so it's a perfect example of the hard-hearted really suppressing the truth of God and believing the lie that we can have such knowledge. No one includes everyone, except for God, of course. But make no mistake, that no one knows the day or the hour, the day, the last day, the day of Christ's glorious return and the end of the age is indeed coming, and so we ought to be ready and on the alert. Well, this is what we consider in this next portion of the Olivet Discourse. And Jesus has given numerous signs, signs that appear in every age, signs which remind us that the end is drawing closer. He's also given uh, some very specific signs in connection with the fall of Jerusalem that occurred in 70 AD that, of course, His disciples, His own disciples would, uh, would witness. And Jesus has described other signs and events that will accompany His return in power and glory. These cataclysmic events that can't be misunderstood, such that everyone everywhere in the world will know at that time with all certainty that the end has come. But the one thing Jesus hasn't told His disciples is the precise time that the last day will come. Knowing the hearts of his disciples, knowing the hearts of all men, even knowing our hearts, Jesus knows that they're thinking about it. And so he gives them this clear instruction, and then he warns them that they ought to be ready. Verse 36, Jesus clearly declares, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Well first I want want us to consider carefully what Jesus is referring to here when he says that day. As we've noted several times before, Jesus of course is answering the disciples' question back in verse 3. Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Of course the disciples wanted to know when the destruction of the temple would be. But they also seemed to conflate the destruction of Jerusalem with the return of Christ at the end of the age. Again, after all, the Jerusalem and the temple were, were everything to the Jews. It was the center of their lives, their, their national identity, and their religion. And so if something were to happen to the temple and to the beloved city of Jerusalem, well then it would certainly seem to them as though it was the end of the world. But throughout the Olivet Discourse, Jesus has been careful to distinguish between the two events. Now, they're related in the fact that the judgment of God upon the Jews for rejecting Jesus and putting Him to death will be a precursor to the final judgment to come upon the whole world at the end of the age. But again, the two events aren't the same. We noted before also how the phrase, these things ties together the events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, so that Jesus affirms in verse 34, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. In other words, the disciples and those of their generation will be alive to see these things taking place. And indeed, they did some 40 years from this point uh, in 70 AD. But the two times that Jesus speaks specifically about his return, power and glory, and the end of the age, he makes a very clear distinction. First, back in verse 29, he says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. In other words... After the tribulation of the events of 7A day and after the tribulation of wars and disasters and uh, per- persecutions and suffering that will happen in every age, only after those things will the cataclysmic signs of the end be witnessed by those who are alive at that time. Well, then the second time that Jesus specifically addresses his return at the end of the age is here in verse 36 but of that day and hour. Now the word but here is a strong adversative, and it marks a distinct change from what's come before. In this case, Jesus is making a distinction from all these things in verse 34. And of course the distinction is further strengthened by the word that, which speaks of a very specific day as opposed to the general, those days, back in verse 29. And so that day is emphatic. It's the day when all things will come to culmination, the day to end all days, even the last day. And so in these verses, Jesus is clearly referring to His return and glory at the end of the age, and not to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. or any day after that, except, of course, for that very last day. In verses 29 to 31, Jesus had already described the clearly visible signs, right, the great cataclysmic <laughs> events that would accompany that day. Whether it be sudden worldwide darkness followed by the revelation of of Jesus and power and glory with a, a great flash of light all around the world, all at the same time. And then the parable of the fig tree in verse 32 showed that judgment was coming. First it was coming in 70 AD upon the Jews for the rejection of Jesus the Messiah and they're putting him to death. And then the coming of judgment at the end of the age as Jesus comes as the righteous judge of all the earth. So this last day has been appointed by God. It's clearly coming. On a certain day, at a certain hour, at some point in the future. We know it's coming. But the specific day or hour in which it will come, Jesus affirms, No one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Again, no one here means no one. It's all inclusive of all mankind. Not you, not me, not the apostles, not the reformers, not a monk in some far off monastery somewhere, not some cult leader, and not some false prophet deceiving people with their false predictions on the radio, on TV, on their YouTube or Facebook live stream. No one knows They don't know the day, and they don't know the hour, and no, they don't even know the month and the year. And some have tried to wiggle in that direction. Beloved of God, if someone, anyone, claims to tell you, claims to know the time of Christ's return, And even if they do so in the vaguest of terms and and they try to hedge their prediction with something like, well, it's a possibility, we can't know for certain, but I really think this is when it's going to happen. Well, the very fact that they're speculating on something that God hasn't revealed puts them in foolish and sinful territory. And so if someone claims to have such knowledge... Or if someone claims to have broken some kind of secret code found in the scriptures. Then you ought to simply run the other way. And run quickly. Because chances are, they're a false prophet. They're a deceiver. And very often they're a crook. Really looking for a way to profit off the ignorant, undiscerning masses. And so don't be... Among those numbered. Jesus states it very clearly. Of that day and hour, no one knows. In fact, Jesus says not even the angels know. And the angels, of course, we know they serve and minister in the very presence of God. Not even the angels or the, those in the whole heavenly host know the day or the hour. Now they're going to find out. And they'll know before we know. They'll find out when uh, God gives them the command to go forth and to gather the elect from the four corners of the earth. That'll be their indication that, okay, it's happening. God hasn't revealed it to them. And so it's just one big secret. And we need to be content with that. We need to be content with what God has revealed. We need to be content with what God has not revealed. God alone knows the appointed time. Now the implication of Jesus' statement here is that He doesn't even know. In fact, in Mark's gospel account, Mark records these words of Jesus in Mark 13 verse 32, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So not even Jesus knows the day and the hour of His return. At least He didn't at that time. He does now. Now that He has ascended to glory to sit at the right hand of God the Father. He knows now. He knows when He's coming back. But at this time, He did not know. Now, some will look at this passage and they'll say, Ah, see, Jesus didn't know everything, so He must not truly be God if He doesn't know something that God knows. And so they'll use this to deny the divine nature of Jesus, saying, Okay, this just proves that He was just a man. He A great man, He was a great prophet, but He wasn't God, He was just a man. Because He didn't know these things. But the fact that Jesus in His human nature doesn't know when He will return doesn't mean that He wasn't truly God. No, Jesus, the Son of God, as part of His humiliation, and in order for, him, for God to become man, well, of course, He had to limit Himself in certain ways. He limited Himself with a human body, and so that He could only be in one place at a time. He limited himself with his body in the sense that that he would hunger, he would thirst, that he would be tired, and that he would even be tempted, even as we are, so that he could identify with us in our sin and misery. And yes, he even limited himself in relation to his knowledge so that he could truthfully answer the questions of the disciples. And so they couldn't charge him later, well, you never told us, you never warned us, you knew this and you didn't tell us. No, he has already said to them, I'm telling you these things beforehand so that you know. He's telling them everything that he knows. God had purposed that the time of the end wouldn't be revealed to anyone until it occurred. But why would this knowledge be kept from Jesus' disciples and even from us? Well, there are several reasons. first is that the Lord wants us to trust him. To trust Him that He's revealed to us everything that we need to know about ourselves, about Him, and about how we're to serve and and glorify Him. He's revealed that the last day is coming. And so we need to just simply trust Him that it surely is coming. Secondly, He knows our (coughs) sinful human nature. He knows that if we knew the precise day and hour... Well, then we'd very likely live our lives recklessly until the day drew closer. But He's called us to live holy and righteous lives. To serve Him in all that we do. He doesn't want us to be slack in how we live our lives. He wants us to be faithful to follow His commands and to glorify Him. And He doesn't want us to be filled with great fear and anxiety as the day approaches Again if we knew the precise day and hour as that day approached we'd increase in anxiety wondering whether we've done all that we could possibly do will god truly be pleased with us when he returns will he truly be re- will we be rewarded or will we face judgment the lord doesn't want us to be overcome with fear and anxiety he wants us to be wise And he wants us to be ready and prepared, which is why he's revealed what he has. But he doesn't want us to be fretting as the last day approaches. Because this too would be a distraction from what he has called us to do. And so it's it's for good reason that the Lord hasn't revealed to us the precise day and hour. And to illustrate some of these concerns, Jesus now turns to An Old Testament example or comparison uh, of coming judgment. Verse 37 But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus mentions Noah because during Noah's day was the last time that God's judgment came upon the whole earth when the flood came upon the earth. And this judgment came because mankind had become exceedingly wicked. In fact, the Lord gave this assessment in Genesis 6 verse 5. This is before the flood. He says, uh, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Because of this, God had purpose to bring a cataclysmic flood upon the earth as a judgment. But God abounded with grace and mercy. And so he also purposed to save Noah and his family that they might start anew. So God called Noah and he charged Noah to build the ark. Now we don't know uh, how long it took Noah to build the ark, uh, but the ark was huge and, and it was likely only Noah and his sons that were working on it. And God only told Noah, though, that he was going to destroy the earth. He never told him when it was going to happen until... Seven days before it started to rain is when God told him, Look, seven days from now, the flood's coming. And so Noah, his family, and the animals, God had instructed, entered the ark, and the Lord himself shut them in. And then the flood waters came upon all the earth, and all flesh, all living things, both man and beast, that were upon the earth died. God's judgment had come. There's another aspect to this comparison that Jesus makes as we see in verse 38 and 39. So while Noah was working on the ark, and again this would have been a, a witness and a warning to those around him who saw him. Uh, this, so even by building the ark, Noah was, was witnessing to this judgment to come. But what was everyone else doing? They were just going about their life as usual. They were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. Now, there's nothing wrong with these things. They're good things to pursue. But they were pursuing them as an end in themselves. That is, living life to the fullest without any regard to God, their creator. And they didn't heed Noah's warnings. And Peter tells us in Second Peter 2 that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So even as he's building the ark, he's also preaching and, and proclaiming to them God's truth. And yet they didn't humble themselves before the Lord. They didn't repent. They just continued to pursue all that this life has to offer. Ignoring the warning proclaimed to them that judgment was coming. Until the day Noah and his family entered the ark. And the Lord shut them in and the floodwaters came. Then they took notice. But by then... The end had now come, and it was too late. God's judgment had come upon them. They lived their whole lives without regard to God, and when judgment came, the realization of the foolishness of their unbelief would have quickly come upon them as the floodwaters swept them away. Well, How does this relate to the second coming of Jesus in power and glory at the end of the age? Well, there's several comparisons. First, we know that the sinfulness of mankind is still exceedingly wicked. In fact, though God brought judgment upon the earth with a great flood in Noah's day, it's important to remember that the floodwaters didn't purge the world of sin and even didn't certainly didn't purge mankind of sin. After the flood waters receded and Noah and his family left the ark, Noah offered a sacrifice uh, to the Lord. And in response, the Lord's assessment of mankind remained much the same. He promised he's not going to uh, bring this uh, judgment upon the earth by by flood. But his assessment of mankind was this, the imagination of man's heart is evil from its youth. And so nothing had changed. Man was still sinful, and the condition of man's sinful heart obviously hasn't improved since that time. And so judgment is coming, even as it was in the days of Noah. Secondly, we note that just as Noah was a preacher of righteousness and and warned of coming judgment through both his words and, and his deeds, well, those entrusted with the gospel, even us, the church, we must issue the same warning that people would repent, that they would turn from their sins, and that they would seek God's forgiveness, that they might be spared God's just wrath. And though we're confident that those whom the Lord has graciously appointed to salvation will hear our message and come to faith in Christ, we know that many will not come. And they will not only ignore our warnings, but they will mock us. And perhaps even persecute us because of the message that we proclaim. People will simply carry on their lives all around us, living with no regard to God, their Creator. Their foolish hearts will be hardened, just as they were in the days of Noah. And we see a third comparison in the suddenness of God's judgment. Again, the picture is people just carrying on one day to the next, eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, and they're pursuing their own heart's desire, and their own sinful lusts. and then suddenly, back in verse 29, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So they're carrying on in their lives. And then suddenly, Jesus will come. He will come in power and glory. But again, at that time, when He comes, and even when it's time when everything gets dark, it'll be too late for them. And they'll mourn because the judgment against them for their sin and unbelief has now come. They won't be ready. They won't be prepared. The last day will come swiftly. It will come without warning. And when it comes, it will be too late. Indeed, the only warning they'll have is the warning proclaimed by the church. To repent and believe the gospel. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Beloved to God, what a great challenge and responsibility given to us. And may we be faithful to proclaim this warning. Because when the end comes, that's it. But again, Jesus is sharing these things with his disciples and with us. So that we might be ready and prepared for that last day. So that when the day comes, that we can be comforted with great hope and assurance, even as Noah and his family were comforted when they entered the ark and were preserved from destruction. <laughs> we catch a glimpse of this in, in verses 40 and 41. The two men will be in the field and one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Now, there's some disagreement about Who is who in these verses? That is, who's taken and who's left? Is the imagery of the righteous being taken and the wicked being left behind? Well, when we consider what Jesus said earlier about the angels being sent forth to gather the elect, that certainly may be the case. But if we're still in the context of Noah, well, the righteous were the ones who were actually left behind. Preserved on the earth in the ark, and the wicked were the ones who were taken away in the floodwaters of God's judgment. So either way, it works. And honestly, it doesn't really matter. Because the point that Jesus is making here is that there's going to be a separation. A separation between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous and the wicked, of course, live amongst one another in the world. In our, in our workplaces, we live among the wicked. In our schools, in the grocery store, even, yes, even in the church. And when the last day comes, one will be taken and the other will be left. The sheep will be separated from the goats. The wheat will be separated from the chaff. The just will be separated from the wicked. Beloved of God, this is our great hope. That on the last great day, when our precious Savior appears, we who trust in the Lord Jesus for salvation will be separated from the sin and the sinners of this world. We'll be taken and preserved from God's judgment as we're safely guarded in Christ. Even as Noah and his family were guarded and protected in the ark. And we'll begin our new and eternal life in the glorious presence of our great God and Creator. What a great comfort for us. What a great hope for us to look forward to. But Jesus issues another warning in verse 42. Watch therefore, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. And so you must keep watch. You must be alert and ready since you don't know when that day will come. Now how can you be ready? Well, Jesus is going to proceed from this point to demonstrate in several parables that will close out the Olivet Discourse and which we'll, Lord willing, cover in the next couple of weeks. But for now, you know you can be ready for the last great day if you would even now first humble yourselves before God and repent of your sins and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. You must believe the gospel and you must trust that what Jesus accomplished on the cross was for you. For your sins, for your forgiveness, to give you everlasting life. And you can be ready for the last day by living your life now, not for yourselves or for your own vain pursuits, but for God's glory. Seeking to love and serve Him first and foremost and glorify Him in all you do. By keeping His commandments and loving your neighbor as yourself. You should live your life always ready for Christ's return. But this doesn't mean you just sit around doing nothing until He comes. No, not at all. Being ready and watchful also means that you must keep busy doing what the Lord has called you to do, not only generally in in serving Him, but specifically in being a faithful witness to those around you. Even as Noah was a preacher of righteousness to his generation, to warn others of the judgment to come, calling them to repentance and sharing the hope of the gospel with them, that they too might be saved, that they too might be ready when Jesus comes again in power and glory on that last day. Beloved of God, you don't know when Jesus will return. No one knows. So you ought to be ready You ought to be ready by living your life to the glory of God alone each and every day. Let's pray. O gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks for Your Word and for Your blessing and the challenge to us to live our lives for Your glory, to be faithful in serving You and serving others in Your name, and to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel to the dying world around us. Father, that's how we are to be ready, to be watchful. Not to be concerned and not to be caught up in setting dates and looking for signs and trying to interpret signs of the times. But we're to be faithful in serving You and being ready for Your return on that last day. And we do look forward to it with great hope and anticipation. Because we know that when you return, that we will be freed once and for all from this life of sin and death, from this curse that we have lived under, that we've been born with. And that we will be in your glorious presence forever and ever and ever, where there is fullness of joy. And so, Father, we just praise you and thank you that you would be with us and help us in these things, that you would equip us as individuals and as a congregation to be faithful into proclaiming the gospel, and that your guiding hand would be upon us as we seek to serve you and to glorify you. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.